You're listening to WJMSRadio.com, where radio is reimagined. The Fired Up Show starts right now. And welcome. Welcome, everyone. Welcome back to Fired Up right here on WJMSRadio.com, where radio is reimagined. Well, here we are. This is Steve. I'm the host. And we are in the 12th month of the year. Uh, Can't believe how fast 2021, uh, in some regards, has gone by. In other regards, it has seemed to drag its crazy butt across our consciousness. uh, Just super slow. But anyway, um, digressing a little there. Uh, We're now in December, which means we're going to start winding down the year. Uh, we're going to take a look, uh, starting with this show and over the next couple of shows, we're going to look at some of the hot button and high profile topics that we talked about uh, in 2021. Uh, and again, it, this probably is going to mean there'll be some people that we're talking about, but we're going to try and keep it to the political issues. Uh, as, as this show goes, I uh, really want to get into the mechanics of what makes our political system uh, function or dysfunction, as the case may be. So, but always in starting off, let's uh, run down our COVID numbers. We have just over 49 million uh, cases recorded uh, of the COVID disease. Uh, We've seen 788,000 deaths uh, since the outbreak of the pandemic here in this country. And we have 466 million who have received uh, at least one dose uh, of the vaccine. And we are closing in at around nearly 60% of the population, which is fully vaccinated. And that's a good thing. Uh, let's keep that number moving. So, you know, in, in COVID news, the newest variant on the block, uh, the so-called Omicron variant, uh, in the past week, 10 days, it has gotten a firm foothold here in the United States. It's been... Uh, progressing uh, since starting in South Africa. It's been moving, you know, around various countries of the world based on travel patterns. And it is now, it has landed here in the U.S. Uh, we have a, a, a small but growing number of cases reported in states like New York and California, uh, in, in Florida and some other areas where, you know, major travel hubs for international travel. Uh, It is still unclear, according to health officials and scientists, uh, what the level of effectiveness the current crop of vaccines we have will be against this Omicron variant. But they are still encouraging everyone to get vaccinated if you haven't been vaccinated. And if you have, uh, get your booster shot as soon as it is available to you to get, uh, just to make sure that you're maximizing your protection against uh, COVID in in all of its forms, including this latest Omicron variant. Uh, We are seeing uh, a a lower number, at least according to reports coming out of uh, South Africa and Europe and other locations, that the Omicron variant isn't uh, generating as high a frequency of hospitalizations, uh, but, and I'll say it again, but underscore that bold print. Uh, it is still early. The Omicron variant has only been out and about in the world for a, a few weeks, maybe a month or so. Uh, and we still don't have a whole lot of data regarding how this variant uh, differs from the major variants we've seen over the past two years and you know, what the effectiveness of current vaccines uh, is and uh, what progress the drug companies are making on modifications to the var- to the vaccine formulas to address the Omicron variant. We'll keep an eye on that for you. We'll keep you posted. We'll let you know how it goes. But of course, in the meantime, you know, the number one priorities are, as I said, get vaccinated. If you haven't, get a booster shot. If you uh, are eligible, uh, that is, it has been at least, I believe, six months since you're uh, completing the vaccine uh, regimen, uh, you can get a booster shot. And uh, please do so. Reminder that uh, vaccines are now available for everyone ages five and up in the United States. 
so let, let's make sure that everyone that can get vaccinated does get vaccinated. Uh, it is, you know, simply the best way to protect ourselves against uh, this this variant as well as the existing uh, COVID variants that are already out there. So, as I said, we'll keep you posted on uh, what the is transitioning with the Omicron variant and keep it tuned here and you'll get the best information that we can find to give to you. All right, turning the page on some other subjects. Uh, this week, one of the hot button issues that's been discussed is that the Supreme Court is hearing oral arguments uh, in the case of uh, Dobbs v. Jackson uh, Women's Health Organization, which is a Mississippi uh, law that was brought before the courts there uh, that uh, essentially is banning abortions or seeks to ban abortions at 15 weeks and beyond, which uh, the state claims is uh, where the fetus is capable of uh, responding or feeling pain. So the, the idea here is that uh, depending on how the Supreme Court weighs on this, that uh, the, the uh, law that uh, was passed in 1973, essentially it's called Roe versus Wade. It is the law that gave uh, women the legal protection and the legal right to get an abortion in the United States, uh, which has been under attack uh, by conservative uh, uh, elements uh, ever since. Uh, that law could very well be either uh, struck down in its entirety or could be severely and substantially uh, weakened and under undercut, essentially making it uh, pretty much uh, unenforceable or, or you know, not able to, to do what it was intended to do. And this could also uh, uh, have an impact on a successor case that bolstered the uh, protections under Roe, which was uh, Planned Parenthood of Southeastern Pennsylvania versus Casey. So oftentimes uh, when you hear people having discussions about Roe versus Wade, they'll also mention Casey. And, you know, this is uh, the, the more important, well, maybe not more important, but the, the linchpin of the uh, abortion protection movement in that um, Casey uh, worked on setting standards of fetal viability, which is the delineating point where a, a fetus that is, is born uh, has the, the highest chances of surviving outside of the mother's body. And that's been a, stick, a sticking point with regard to abortion rights and abortion law. Uh, ever since the Roe v. Wade in 1970s. So this week, uh, oral arguments were heard, and the speculation is flying about uh, fast and furious as to whether not or where the, the court may or may not come down on the Roe v. Wade law. Uh, we don't have you know more than just uh, speculation, guessing, and you know, kind of uh, Ouija board looks at what it what it's going to do, what's going to happen. And, you know, there, there's still some more discussion to be held. There's still uh, going to be some conversations that are held uh, by the Supreme Court justices, um, you know, to to look into the law itself and and make their decision. But, you know, the the look outlook um, from most points of view is that there is likely to be some level of severe setback to Roe versus Wade and Casey uh, if for no other reason than the makeup of the current uh, Supreme Court is very clearly a conservative uh, majority at six to three uh, conservative justices uh, as opposed to uh, liberal uh, and I'm giving both of those air quotes. Um, so you know, we, we look at this and say, well, what are the possible outcomes? 
Uh, there's an article in Politico that discussed this a little bit and just going to go through and kind of hit some of the highlights from that article. Um, and, you know, it, it asks the question, what are the possible outcomes? And it says, you know, the state of Mississippi and, and accordingly uh, anti-abortion groups hope that the court will clearly repudiate Roe and Casey. Uh, and, you know, they cite that it is a possibility. Uh, the justices did not need to confront the abortion issue now, much less address a case that would require them to transform or jettison Roe. The court's eagerness to take uh, Dobbs, which is the court, the case that they are hearing, it's the, as I mentioned before, is Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization. Um, so the, the court's eagerness to take Dobbs might signal that the justices are ready to move quickly to dismantle Roe. But some of the justices seem worried about the court being seen as partisan if they move too quickly, especially after former President Donald Trump promised that his nominees would deliver a decision reversing Roe. Some of the court's conservatives might want to unravel the right to abortion over the course of several decisions and to appear to be taking the issue seriously before eliminating abortion rights altogether. Let's dive into that a little bit because that's a point that, that should not be lost in the discussion here. Uh, as you recall, uh, former President Trump had uh, three appointees to the Supreme Court uh, that he was able to, to uh, get to the bench. And his commitment, that's pre former President Trump's commitment, was that you know any judge that he put on Supreme Court was a judge that was going to vote to dismantle and eliminate uh, Roe v. Wade and Casey, uh, basically to eliminate legal protections for abortion in this country. So the idea is, and, and, and what the article was citing here, is that you know if these judges uh, rush to you know, dismantle and end uh, row that they will be perceived as being purely a partisan political court and it will affect the credibility they will have in many many other decisions they will make in you know future years to come and keep in mind that you know Justice Gorsuch, Gorsuch Justice Kavanaugh and Justice Barrett um, are you know, relatively young individuals in, in terms of uh, the ages of the justices sitting on the bench. Um, you know, uh, Justice Clarence Thomas is in his mid to late 80s. Uh, you know, Stephen Breyer, the same way. Uh, these are the younger members of the court. So they have the possibility of, of spending the next you know, 25, 30 or more years on the bench. And if they're perceived as being purely um, partisan uh, puppets, partisan tools of the conservative end of the political spectrum, uh, it, it could impact uh, the perception of the decisions they, re they reach uh, and you know, have some, some impact on how things will work as far as how the Supreme Court functions in the future. Um, so, you know, the, the article goes on, getting back into the article, uh, and, you know, it, it is a, uh, a, a very controversial decision, not only for the fact that it would eliminate constitutional protections for a woman's right uh, to, to, uh, to choose to have an abortion if she, you know, so determines, um, but it also... Uh, creates a, a very real uh, conundrum in terms of uh, how this court and how this country takes on its view of women, of women's health, of very, you know, a, a large number of women's issues uh, simply based on the fact of, you know, a, a political expedient decision being made. So let, let's step into this issue of political expediency um, because we now live in an age where many things are done 
uh, and you know many decisions are made or sacrificed on the altar of politically expedient concept uh, as a matter of routine uh, as opposed to the way it, it was intended by the founders and the way it's been upheld over the course of you know 200 years here in this country that our law is not supposed to be a political entity uh, our law is supposed to be fair uh, justice is supposed to be uh, equitable based on the facts and it not on which way the political winds of the time are blowing now all of that is is said with you know the caveats and the winks and the nods that uh, it's pretty much always been kind of a political uh, machine. However, in the last uh, in the last few decades, that political bent to the law has gotten very, very uh, entrenched and very um, overpowering in terms of its effect on how our laws are shaped, how they are administered. Uh, we could go, you know, and we have gone for many, many shows talking about the effect of politically um, charged laws uh, on individual rights in this country. We'll save that for another show, another time to revisit. But in this particular instance, what I want to point to is and why the, the Supreme Court is feeling the pressure of exactly how they are going to handle the decision that comes out of this case, whatever that may be, uh, whether it's to uh, to eliminate you know Roe and Casey entirely, and you know open it up to a a state's rule approach, uh, put a pin in that. We're going to talk about that in a little bit, um, or if they try to pick out certain elements of the law to make it more difficult for women to to get abortions uh, or the circumstances under which they can get are very very narrowly focused um, and you know that's another area that is seeing a lot of discussion over the past few weeks uh, so it, it is it is a it is a very sticky issue to to deal with um, the art the article goes on that um, you know some folks who have submitted uh, anti-abortion briefs in the Dobbs case uh, have asked the court to identify a fetus as a rights-holding person under the 14th Amendment. That would make abortion unconstitutional everywhere. Uh, the 14th Amendment being the prohibition against cruel and unusual punishment and, and so forth. Uh, the justices aren't likely to go for that, at least not in this case. Um, you know, if some of the justices are worried about appearing partisan, according to the article, they will hardly be eager to hand down a decision criminalizing abortion in states like New York or California, especially right away. More likely, if the justices reverse Roe, without uh, would be a holding that the original public meaning of the 14th Amendment has nothing to do with abortion, especially since many states had criminalized the procedure with almost no exceptions in the latter part of the 19th century. So, you know, if, if the court gets rid of viability but does not spell out that Roe is overruled, there's no way, according to the article, there's no way to uphold Mississippi's law without overruling part of Roe. But the court could try to issue a narrower ruling, and that could involve viability, which has received criticism from past Supreme Court justices and bioethicists. The court could proclaim that viability is not part of Roe's essential holding. Uh, the courts have all acted under the assumption that pre-viability bans are always unconstitutional. Uh, if the court changes the rules, the justices could send Mississippi's case back to the trial court for a second look. So all of that legalese, all of that mumbo jumbo boils down to um, the court has a very difficult uh, decision to make. Uh, on the surface, it would seem, you know, fairly easy to make a binary decision, either, you know, throw it out or, you know, keep it or or modify it. 
Um, but the problem is, depending on how you know a, a modification to the law is handled, uh, it ha it goes beyond Roe versus Wade and Casey and Dobbs, and can impact many more cases in a ripple effect going out and, and into the future uh, that you know may not be able to be foreseen at this time. You know, and that that's kind of the issue when we're dealing with legal decisions. Uh, sometimes to, to the, the lay person, to those of us out here like myself, who aren't lawyers, who aren't schooled in you know, uh, how the law works you know, and, and, and how our, our constitution and how our laws are interpreted, we see it as you know, a, a yes, no, one, zero, uh, you know, plus or minus, red, you know, black or white type question. Uh, when in fact there are you know nuances and as I said there are ripples that will will radiate out from these decisions um, where you know this a decision that that is arrived at or a precedent that is set based on the decision out of this case may have impacts on you know a, a varied number of cases in the future from immigration to education to, you know, equal pay, you know, there are all kinds of ways that, you know, decisions in one case can have impacts on other legal matters. So it remains to be seen um, how the justices are going to, to approach this. As I said, you know, it, it, it could be that they eliminate it in its entirety, everything. They could uh, trim it back, scale it back, pluck some elements of it out. Um, you know, particularly, as I just said, the, the issue of viability, um, that may be an, an issue that they'll be able to carve out and address the law in a very narrowly focused decision, um, you know, or they could decide really to, to, um, to not uphold the Mississippi case and wait for another case that better uh, gives them a handle on addressing the issue of you know legalized uh, abortion in this country i mean it doesn't have to be this law that does what you know uh anti-abortion advocates want to see it's just this law is in front of us right now there may be others that come down the pike you know in in the future that can better address it so we'll we'll see we'll keep an eye on how this progresses through the supreme court in this instance see what the decisions are, try and gauge and get information on what the justices are thinking, and, you know, let's see where the chips, chips land and see where the chips fall. So, you know, it, it's, it's going to be something that carries over, you know, into next year. We're going to be talking about this, you know, after, after New Year's. Uh, clearly, these kind of decisions are not something that are done in a weekend. Uh, they, they take months uh, to to come back, especially when you're dealing with the Supreme Court. So, all right, let's um, let's take a break here. Let's uh, let's do a little messaging, and we'll be right back. You're listening to Fired Up right here on WJMSRadio.com, where radio is reimagined. Uh, and we'll be right back after the break. First thing I want to say is, mandate my ass, Alexa. What is truth? According to Wikipedia, truth is the property of being in accord with fact or reality. In everyday language, truth is typically ascribed to things that aim to represent reality or otherwise correspond to it, such as beliefs, propositions, and declarative sentences. Truth is usually held to be the opposite of falsity. Hi everybody, it's Barack. I want to talk about you getting yours. The vaccine is safe, it's effective, it's free. I got one, Michelle got one, people you know got one, and now you can get one too. It's the only way we're going to get back to all the things we love, from safely spending time with grandparents to going to concerts and watching live sports. So get the vaccine as soon as you can. And welcome back to Fired Up, right here on WJMSRadio.com, where radio is reimagined. Um, I, I faulted the Democrats on their strategy of an all-or-nothing, a take-it-or-leave-it approach 
uh, whenever you you make that kind of approach to uh, to an opponent, you always have and run the risk of them saying, I won't take any of it or I'll leave it. Then what do you do? So by putting, you know, this all eggs in one basket, you know, three and a half trillion dollar uh, package in front of the Republicans, uh, Democrats, in a sense, kind of forced their hand to say, no, we don't want that. And here we are uh, going through week after week of debate and discussion back and forth. Um, you know, again, we all have our own opinions. In my opinion, uh, I think a more uh, reasoned approach would be to to offer selected pieces of it as stages of an inter- infrastructure package uh, that would have been perhaps a little bit more digestible to the Republican Party uh, and to the American people as well. Uh, but the Republicans are also playing games in this. Uh, they are are playing that that old magician's tactic of getting your attention to what's going on with the left hand while the right hand is is doing what you want to do. Uh, the Republicans have adopted a uh, delay, distract, divide uh, approach in this in that they have placed these these issues that create a huge amount of public uproar, a huge amount of public discussion while in the background they're working things more akin to their their tactical goals. And by that I mean, you know, the the redistricting efforts that are going on around the country while, you know, the public is is, you know, paying in large part attention to the battles going on on Capitol Hill, uh, Republican legislatures in the state are moving forward with redistricting plans that are you know diluting the vote of you know minority districts and and other ways of disenfranchising minority voters uh, that's going to have very long-term effects obviously in terms of redistricting this is a once every 10 year process so you know whatever changes finally get adopted uh, the country's going to have to live with for the next 10 years um, you know, and as we've talked about on prior shows, uh, these redistricting plans, uh, for the most part, have been flying somewhat under the radar. Uh, some news outlets have been bringing them out, and I know we've been discussing them here. Uh, we've talked in past weeks, we've talked about redistricting battles going on in Michigan and in Texas, uh, in Florida, and, and I believe in Utah as well, where you know, the Republican control legislatures are dividing up areas where um, my, minority voters make up the majority of the population and blending them with, uh, you know, with white districts in order to create districts that are more favorable to the Republican platform rather than give a fair voice to all of the residents in that given area. You know, as I said, we've talked about this uh, pretty heavily over the last three weeks. You can go to our archive at SoundCloud.com or or tune in, or go through the WJMS.com uh, website and check out our prior shows to hear what we've talked about with that. Um, but in the most recent one that just came out this past week, uh, and this is a story from United Press International, uh, a federal court in Illinois has thrown out redistricting plans for the state as unconstitutional for violating the one person one vote principle. So uh, again to, to kind of give some background here um, you know the the census and the redistricting efforts are codified in the Constitution of the United States that is every 10 years every resident uh, every person living in the United States is counted, and the results of those counts are used to determine how many uh, constituents each congressional representative will have, and essentially how the control of the U.S. Um, House of Representatives is divided up. So every 10 years, we have these efforts at redistricting. And, you know, the party in power in each state 
uh, is the party in control of drawing district maps. And, you know, typically, and it doesn't matter whether it's a Democratic state or a Republican state, the tendency is that they tend to draw districts that favor their own party. Um, you know, there, there's been discussion about establishing bipartisan commissions, and in fact, those do exist in several states where the district lines are being drawn just based on the number of constituents living in a given area that would allow for each representative to have an equal number of constituents regardless of their political party. Um, and as I said, that's happening in, in several states, but the overwhelming majority of states are actually divided up along party lines. And since Republicans control the majority of state houses in the states uh, in the U.S., obviously the resulting districts end up uh, over overrepresenting the power of Republicans versus Democrats, uh, where Democrats may actually physically outnumber Republicans. A good example of this, uh, as we've talked about, is what's going on with redistricting in Texas, where because of population shifts over the last 10 years, um, there are several districts which, you know, according to the old map, would be predominantly minority-controlled districts, and under the new maps would be diluted or watered down to make them uh, Republican districts. So, you know, we, as I said, we've talked about this uh, more times than I can count. It's part of the games that are played and part of the games we need to be aware of so that we can weigh in and make our voices heard on how our states are divided up. But getting back to Illinois, this ruling uh, is in response to two lawsuits, one of which was filed by the Democratic Mexican-American Legal Defense and Education Fund, and the other filed by the Republican Party of Illinois. Uh, the federal court has consolidated these two cases together as both plaintiffs allege the June redistricting plan violated their right to equal protection under the 14th Amendment of the Constitution. So the, the June redistricting plan uh, was a result of a uh, map that was drawn based on data that came from the American Community Survey uh, and which was approved by the Democrat-controlled General Assembly in May prior to the release of the 2020 U.S. Census. Uh, the census was delayed due to the, you know, the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, uh, Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker signed the redistricting plan into law on June 4th. Uh, the suit was brought and brought before a three-judge panel uh, at the, the federal district level, and they ruled uh, last Wednesday that the plan created for both House and Senate districts were either overpopulated or underpopulated, which would dilute the voting power of their constituents in violation of the aforementioned constitutional uh, 14th Amendment. Uh, the defendants had argued that they had faced a constitutional mandate to enact the plan before June 30th as their reason for not waiting for release of the census data. However, the judges rejected this argument, saying there's no mandate saying the plans had to be completed by that date. The mandate, the, the ruling of the law states that if they were not completed by that date, a redistricting commission would take over. Now, if we step out of the article for a second here, um, the idea that the redistricting commission perhaps would have drawn districts that were either more evenly balanced between the two parties or based on the, uh, the population distributions, the demographics, would have favored Democrats over the Republicans. And obviously, uh, you know, with all of the 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 headaches and arguments that would have ensued. The judges said the Democrats didn't wait for the census data to be released because of their desire to avoid handing over the redrawing of maps to a bipartisan commission, as I was just stating. Political, and this is a quote, political considerations are not unconstitutional and courts are reluctant to wade into, much less to reverse 
partisan maps, including those that amount to political gerrymanders, the court said. More quote, while there is nothing legally wrong with this approach, it is not a proper rationale for violating constitutionally required mandates, including the drawing of districts of approximately equal population. In other words, the judges said, the General Assembly may not dilute a large percentage of voters to advance preferred political outcome. The three-judge panel has uh, set a deadline of November 8th to submit proposed revisions to the map with the state to offer its responses and objections 10 days later. Uh, there's another hearing scheduled for November 5th. Um, you know, and according to Ernest Herrera, uh, Mexican-American Legal Defense and Education Fund staff attorney, uh, quote, the court has affirmed what we have argued since Illinois began the redistricting process, and that is proceeding with redistricting using estimates of population rather than census enumeration data would result in unconstitutional maps. Uh, the Republican House leader, Jim Durkin, and Republican Senate leader, Dan McConchie, called the ruling in a statement issued uh, to the State Journal Register a victory for Illinois citizens, advocacy groups, and communities of interest. Uh, and quote, during this process, the Republican caucuses consistently demanded transparency and fairness in map making, which were rejected by Democrats and Governor Pritzker. The court's ruling validates all the concerns that were raised during the Democrats' unconstitutional attempts to gerrymander Illinois. And we step out of the article here to point out the fact that in this particular case, in this particular state, the game's being played by the Democrats, not by the Republicans. Holding up the argument, I state many, many times that both sides play these games. All right. Um, back to the article. Uh, the ruling comes days after the Legal Defense Fund with several other voting civil rights groups sued Texas over redistricting plans on accusations that they are unconstitutional and strip Latinos of their voting power. So, you know, this this article falls in line with what we've been talking about on this show. Number one, that, you know, it, it is not just, you know, the Republicans uh, or just the Democrats that play these type of political games. Uh, number two, that we need to pay attention to the strategy at play and the tactics at play as we assess the performance of our elected officials of whichever political party we're talking about. And number three, that you know, we need to hold our elected officials accountable for the actions they take, particularly when those actions run counter to what general public opinion is, is calling for as we've seen in, in this scenario in, in terms of district representation, as well as, as many others uh, that we've talked about here on this show and, and other media sources have brought out uh, over, over the years. So, you know, as always, you know, our call to action is to stay engaged, to stay informed, uh, to stay educated, and to stay in communication with our elected officials so that they know where we stand on you know these kinds of matters so if you're you know living in illinois you need to pay particular attention to how these maps are being drawn who's drawing them and what the end result will be uh, and make sure that you let your voice be heard on the matter you know to your state legislatures and to your governor's office so that they're aware that if they're not following the will of the people that there are changes that the people can make and that we will make. So, you know, all in all, as always, we say our, our call to action consistently is stay educated, stay engaged, stay informed, and, you know, let them know what you want them to do. So, you know, as I said, we're keeping an eye on redistricting efforts around the country. And as these plans come to light, as states announce uh, their preliminary plans, 
we will do our best to assess them and, and find out the details and, and look at the pros and cons and bring that information to you. Um, however, that doesn't preclude you from doing your diligence and expanding the circle of information that you get, as we always call for here. Don't just listen to one side or you know the other. Uh, if you're in the mainstream media, you know listen across the spectrum. If you're listening in social media, you know listen to arguments on on both sides. Listen to the the postings from both sides of the issue. The truth lies in the middle, good people, and you know it, it's our job uh, to find it and assess it for our value. Uh, no one is going to do that for us. Um, so, you know, again, the call out is, you know, what do you think of what's going on? We've, we've talked about several states redistricting efforts over the past few weeks, and I'd love to hear what your thoughts are on how, you know, the states in general and your state in particular, uh, go to your state websites and look up redistricting map and see how your districts are drawn, see who, uh, represents you and, and see who else they represent. You know, is, is your district uh, a majority of one party over another? Is it a majority uh, minority district? Is it a majority white district? Look at the demographics and see how that plays into how your state legislature and your federal elected officials uh, respond to the needs you have in your state because that's the way it works. Uh, send any questions you have or comments you have to FiredUpRadio at Yahoo.com. Uh, I, I really would like to hear what you have to say. Uh, so a couple of other things that are, are tripping around the news. You know, we've, we've talked about COVID booster shots. We've talked about redistricting. We've talked about you know, a, a lot of stuff this show. But there's, there's always still more. So let, let's, let's take a look at a few quick takes that we can go through with the, the minutes we have remaining here in the show. Let's take a look at the filibuster. And again, it's another subject that we've touched on frequently here on this show. Uh, for those that, that don't know or, or aren't fully understanding, the filibuster in the Senate is a rule as part of the Senate rules package Number one, please keep in mind, it is not a federal law. It is just a rule of the body of the Senate uh, that uh, can require a 60-vote threshold for certain uh, legislation in order for that legislation to pass. Uh, in the past, it was 60 votes needed to approve uh, federal judges and Supreme Court justices, uh, which the Republicans... Uh, eliminated from the filibuster rule uh, and in, in order to allow them and give them the freedom to, you know, appoint the three justices they appointed in the Trump administration uh, by simple uh, majority vote, a 51 vote majority. Um, other elements that require a filibuster include uh, budget spending elements such as the uh, the infrastructure package is currently under consideration. So the argument has been that, um, you know, the, the Democrats should move forward with efforts to either eliminate the filibuster in its entirety or to enact additional exceptions, uh, as with, you know, federal judicial appointments in the filibuster for, you know, these specific types of financial needs. And in, in both cases, um, there have been you know, people on both sides of the aisle in favor and opposed. And the arguments are going back and forth as to whether or not the filibuster should be eliminated in its entirety or if there should be exceptions carved out for specific elements of legislation that need to be passed that could then be passed on a simple 51-vote majority. Um, the, the arguments uh, against, and these have been expressed by both parties over the years when they were on either side of the issue, is that if they eliminate the filibuster now, it is something that would come back and haunt uh, the minority party or the majority party uh, when the roles reversed, you know, either through a midterm election or through a national election. 
Um, you know, and, you know, there may be some validity to that argument that, you know, if, if we get rid of the filibuster now because it benefits us, we're going to be crying the blues in the future when the other side uh, uses it against us and it, it's our own fault because we voted to get rid of it. To me, uh, again, as we talk about, you know, st- strategy and tactics and choices, um, to me, that's a weak argument. Uh, right now, with, you know, the infrastructure bill, and let, let's use this as the example, the things, the hard infrastructure things that are in this package of bills are things that our country desperately needs. We desperately need to have our roads and bridges uh, fixed and rebuilt or replaced. We desperately need to have our rail systems upgraded to standards at least as equal to other major developed countries in the world. Uh, The idea of expanding broadband internet service to all parts of the country is one that has been long talked about and long overdue and, you know, and, and so forth. There are many things in the infrastructure, the hard infrastructure package that are absolute necessities of things that we need to get done in this country. Um, you know, and the, the idea that we saddle these vital elements with things that are, while important, don't get me wrong, but, you know, aren't critical infrastructure things. Um, these are things that, you know, could be brought forward as separate packages, in my opinion, uh, as the, the proof of how well the hard infrastructure improvements are are you know impacting the economy and you know the the all of the assessments all of the political discussions talk about how these infrastructure improvements will generate millions of jobs will stimulate the US economy which will go in effect to generate more revenue into the federal government to pay for these improvements down the road lessening the impact that taxes from your and my paycheck uh, will will need to be uh, garnished in order to to achieve this. Um, you know, again, strategically, we need to get these uh, items done. Tactically, we need to approach it from a, a staged approach. You know, let, let's deal with these critical infrastructure, hard infrastructure items first, and then deal with the soft infrastructure items, you know, as the economy responds and we are better able to afford them, thus lessening the amount of debt that we create and, and the, the burdens that are, that are applied to the working and middle class of this country and so forth. Um, you know, it is, uh, you know, it is, it is something that when you look at it from the outside looking in, you kind of have to ask yourself, you know, why didn't they think of this element of it? Or if they did think of it, why wasn't it pushed harder? So, you know, it, it's, it's something, again, we have to be engaged with our elected officials. That is clearly a rule that we need to live by in this country as the voters, as the electorate. Uh, whether you're a Democrat, whether you're a Republican, whether you're independent, uh, we need to uh, address these issues and stay informed and educated and engaged with them. Um, another, another point to consider, and keep in mind that you know, in this show, I, I try not to speak about political figures, politicians, more than more so that I prefer to speak about the political system. But, you know, I, I look at the upcoming midterm elections and I look at the uh, national elections, you know, three years out, and I look and listen to all of the discussions going on uh, with regard to, you know, the, the influence of the prior president, the former president, and his his approach to things to how politics is going to go forward in the coming election cycles and i say this it is entirely possible for this country to address the issues raised raised by a a trumpian approach to things without having to engage with the person 
uh, we can have Trumpism without having its its namesake, without having Donald Trump. Um, you know, and and I think more and more that we need to be communicating to our elected officials that same approach. Look, there are things that the 45th president did from a policy standpoint and regulation standpoint. Many things he, he did um, personally I don't approve of. Many things, uh, some things that he did were hurtful to the, the middle class and working class families in this country. But there were other things that he did that actually benefited all Americans and he should receive credit for them. And of course, the flagship item on that list is his vaccine uh, mandate program, Operation Warp Speed, uh, for which he rightly deserves the credit for getting the vaccines out into the marketplace in the, the short amount of time that he did so. We'll give him credit for that, okay. But that doesn't mean that we can't have uh, things akin and in line with uh, his way of thinking or, or his uh, segment of the party uh, lines of thinking uh, that are beneficial without the, the bad things, the negative things that the individual brought in along with it. So just something to think about. Um, you know, there, there's a silver lining to every dark cloud. And, you know, if, if we're going to improve, we've got to be more of a nation of glass half full than glass half empty people. Well, that's going to do it for this week. Uh, thank you so much, as always, for listening. Uh, please send your thoughts and comments to the radio station email, to the show email at firedupradio at yahoo.com. I look forward to your comments. Please stay safe, get vaccinated, and I will speak to you all again in seven days. message wherever you stand I'm calling every woman calling every man we're the generation we can't afford to wait the future started yesterday and we're already late